Next on Lectures in History, University of Texas at Austin professor Peniel Joseph teaches a class on the life and career of civil rights pioneer Ronald Walters. In 1958, Walters organized a desegregation sit-in and was later influential in the spread of African-American studies as a scholarly field. He also served as advisor to the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus and was campaign manager and consultant for Jesse Jackson in his 1984 and 1988 presidential campaigns. Today we're going to be talking about the life of Ronald W. Walters and the search for black power, 1969 to 2010. Uh, Dr. Walters um, was an eminent political scientist who talked about and wrote extensively about black leadership, um, wrote about reparations. Uh, he anticipates the rise of Donald Trump in the 2016 election with a book on white nationalism. Uh, Ron Walters was one of the leading figures uh, in African-American intellectual um, circles talking about, uh, really talking about how institutional racism impacted black lives throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and into the 21st century. Um, when we think about Ron Walters, I think it's important to remember that Ron Walters was really one of the leading, if not the leading, black public intellectual in the 1980s. And right now, we, we may think of public intellectualism as something else um, with the proliferation of social media, but Ron Walters was a scholar activist who really impacted policy debates and shaped the way in which um, black policy matters were presented um, at the local, regional, uh, and national and international level. And when we think about Ron Walters, Ron Walters really gives us a window into um, how we think about black politics and its evolution in the post-war period. Uh, Ron Walters was born in 1938 in Wichita, Kansas. He's born to um, an African-American family who aren't quite uh, uh, professionals, but who are well-known and notable uh, black family in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, Ron grows up and becomes a race man. He, he attends a segregated elementary school, but a predominantly white uh, high school, East High. And he becomes somebody who's interested in civic activism. He has a lifelong interest in democracy and political affairs. Um, he graduates from East High School and attends uh, Wichita State for a short time uh, before transferring to Fisk because of racism that he encounters when he tells professors he wants to study Africa. Uh, for a time, he wants to become uh, somebody who works for the State Department and somebody who's investigating African affairs. Uh, he's going to eventually enroll in a Ph.D. program in political science at American University in Washington, D.C., and his interests in Africa are really going to converge with the abiding interest in black American politics during the rising tide of both the civil rights movement's heroic period and the black power period. And when we think about the civil rights movement's heroic period, we're really thinking about the period between 1954 and 1965, between the Brown uh, desegregation decision on Topeka, Kansas, in 1954, May 17th, all the way to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, August 6, 1965. And what's interesting about this period is that this period unfolds with a kind of cinematic intensity, right? So when we think about 1954, the Brown decision really is going to spark hope within the African-American community 
that full and equal citizenship is, is on the horizon. But it's also going to spark what scholars call massive white resistance, a massive resistance movement that really is um, contoured by white nationalism, right? And when we think about white nationalism, in this sense, we're thinking about white nationalism really as a, a political a philosophy and ideology of, of white group interest, right? Um, the idea of protecting your own um, citizenship rights, but also protecting your own privilege vis-a-vis uh, -vis racial injustice and racial inequality. So the idea of black presence in white schools was really pushed back by um, white citizens of all economic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, um, uh, when we think about massive resistance, massive resistance is not the Klan. It's not um, tattooed uh, uh, thugs who are, who are beating on black children trying to get into school. Massive resistance are people who are uh, part of the clergy, people who attend church, um, women who are part of the PTA. Uh, massive resistance is organized by both white men and white women. So it's protecting white interest and white citizenship away from black encroachment. So from this perspective, when we think about massive resistance, massive resistance is certainly uh, white nationalism and white supremacy, but by another name. We call it that name massive resistance is very genteel, but massive resistance is, is why we get the Confederate flag and the rebirth of the Confederate flag in South Carolina, in Mississippi, in Georgia. These become symbols of, of white um, racial intransigence, but also white racial pride, right? Um, and Ron Walters grows up amidst all of this. So we think about 1955, massive resistance, but that's also the year Emmett Till um, is assassinated. And Emmett Till is a 14-year-old black uh, boy from uh, Chicago who is assassinated by whites and lynched in uh, Money, Mississippi, August 28th. And we now know um, he did not whistle or say anything uh, to this woman, Caroline Bryant. Uh, he was killed just for being black and 14 and, and going into a store in Money, Mississippi. Till is very important for us because his body is recovered from the Tallahatchie River in Mississippi, and there's a 125-pound cotton gin fan belt tied around his neck. Till is mutilated, disfigured, this grotesque symbol of white supremacy and the fact that black life does not matter in the United States of America, 1955. But Jet Magazine from Chicago, Robert Johnson, Jet Magazine, part of this black publishing empire, they publish Till's mutilated face, his open casket, because his mother allows his, his, his body to be seen in an open casket because she says she wants the world to see what they've done to her son. This is hugely, hugely important. Till becomes an icon before Trayvon Martin, before Black Lives Matter, we have Emmett Till. 1957 is the Little Rock Central High School crisis, where President Eisenhower has to send troops to protect uh, uh, black school children who are attending um, the all-white or integrating all-white Little Rock Central High School. Uh, 1960 is the start of the sit-in movement. One of the things that we have to note with Ron Walters is that Ron Walters is part of the Dockham Drugstore sit-in movement in Wichita, Kansas in 1958, which predates uh, the February 1st, 1960 um, sit-in movement in Greensboro, North Carolina at a Woolworth lunch counter. That lunch counter is now a civil rights uh, museum 
um, um, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Four black students at North Carolina A&T, which is a historically black college in North Carolina in Greensboro, they start a sit-in on February 1st, 1960, that's going to evolve into over 50,000 students across the United States sitting in to try to desegregate lunch counters both in the South but also the North and the West Coast and the Midwest, right? 1961 is going to be the Freedom Rides, and the Freedom Rides are uh, groups of interracial uh, activists from the Congress of Racial Equality, including people like Stokely Carmichael, who are trying to really prove that uh, desegregation in interstate travel has actually occurred. They're going to be met with massive violence in places like Anniston, Alabama, um, around May 14, 1961. And that's going to force the Kennedy administration to, to send federal uh, marshals into the South and really, for the first time, try and take a stand in terms of civil rights, the federal government. Um, 1962, James Meredith becomes the first uh, black student to enroll at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. There's going to be three days of rioting in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, federal marshals, again, are going to be deployed in Oxford, Mississippi. So when we think about by 1962, we can see that the civil rights movement is really cresting. It's cresting. And 63 is going to be the pivotal, um, in a way, peak year of, of uh, civil rights demonstrations. Um, 63 is the year of Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who really has come into the national spotlight alongside Rosa Parks, 1955-56, during the Montgomery, Alabama bus demonstration. That's a 382-day boycott that ends on the 382nd day to desegregate buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And that turns King into a national figure who's covered by Time magazine, covered by the New York Times. Um, when we think about King by 1963, he's a leading political mobilizer, but it's really the struggle to end racial segregation in Birmingham, Alabama, that's going to transform uh, Martin Luther King Jr. The, the King uh, writes the famous letter from Birmingham jail. And in that letter, like we'll see with Ronald Walters, King is a big believer in democracy, this idea of small-d democracy. And in a letter from Birmingham jail, uh, while King is in prison, um, King writes that the young people who are being arrested in Birmingham, Alabama, um, in an effort to desegregate Birmingham, Alabama, are in the future going to be remembered as heroes of, American, of, of, of the United States of America for what King um, characterizes as bringing us all back to those great wells of democracy that were dug deep by the Founding Fathers. So when we think about 63, 63 is what's going to push John F. Kennedy to uh, really have his finest moment, as far as I'm concerned, as President of the United States. June 11, 1963, Kennedy does a 20-minute live address to the United States about uh, the crisis in America. And, and it's, it's about racial justice, racial equality. And that morning, Governor George Wallace, the segregationist who's going to run for president and get over 10 million votes five years later, he did his famous or infamous stand at the schoolhouse door outside the University of Alabama, where he had to step aside so that um, Arthurine Lucy and, and, and um, folks could go in and desegregate the University of Alabama. Kennedy um, talks about that, but Kennedy also, in that speech, talks about rates of black babies dying compared to white babies. He talks about uh, uh, racial justice 
and the civil rights movement being a moral issue. And he's using the language of Martin Luther King Jr. and using the language of civil rights activists. And this is extraordinary. So Kennedy on June 11, 1963, does the most potent presidential speech since Lincoln's second inaugural address in 1865. Um, the morning after Kennedy's speech, early in the morning, uh, around 1 a.m., the civil rights activist and NAACP field secretary, Medgar Evers, 37 years old, is shot through the heart with a high-powered rifle by a white supremacist by white supremacist Byron de la Beckwith, who, who will not be uh, imprisoned until the 90s on federal charges. Um, he's going to go free for 30 years. Um, when we think about that June of 63, there's over 15,000 people arrested in the United States vis-a-vis uh, -vis civil rights demonstrations in 1963. So when we think about 63, 63 is a, a crisis point. It's an inflection point. Birmingham is a global... Uh, humiliation for the United States because everyone from um, the Soviet Union to China to folks in Africa and other parts of Europe start calling Americans savages and say that white supremacy is a global shame and there is no genuine democracy in the United States. So this is a critical crisis of American democracy and, and America's standing in the global in the global world. We have to remember that by, by 63. 64, and certainly when we think about 63, March on Washington, August 28, 1963, that's going to be really uh, the first um, and last time John F. Kennedy hears Martin Luther King Jr. Um, say a speech. Important to remember, King talks about reparations in that speech. Uh, Ron Walters is going to be a huge reparations advocate, and we'll, we'll discuss that. Um, September 15, 1963, four black girls are going to be uh, killed after uh, a white supremacist plants um, a bomb at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And then, of course, on November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Um, these are these pivotal, iconic moments of 63. Uh, 64 is going to be Freedom Summer, where three civil rights workers are murdered in Mississippi, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, Neshoba County, June 21st, 1964. They go missing. And the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, which is an interracial group of civil rights activists, which came out of the sit-ins, are organizing a Mississippi Freedom Summer to try to bring small-D democracy to the state of Mississippi. They're going to organize and bring um, really over 1,000 uh, volunteers, many of whom are white, um, who go in and try to, everything from register people to vote um, to, to the creation of over 41 freedom schools. Uh, the Free Southern, Southern Theater is there uh, doing performances uh, um, in the South. Mississippi Freedom Summer is huge in the sense of highlighting um, the depths of, of racial poverty and, and white supremacy. One of the things we see when we read about Ron Walters, Ron Walters... Um, in his last final posthumously published book, Fighting Neo-Slavery, he makes an argument that uh, there, was, there was slavery into the 20th century, into the 1960s, with black people um, who were sharecropping in Mississippi and Alabama in the Deep South who were disallowed to leave these plantations, um, who, were, who were literally uh, victims of modern-day slavery um, that go way past what uh, the time period Douglas Blackman talks about. Um, 
uh, In Slavery by Another Name, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book about the convict lease system. And, and there's a documentary about it as, as well. Uh, 1964 is also the passage of the, vote of the Civil Rights Act, July 2nd, uh, 1964. And the, the Civil Rights Act is hugely important because what the Civil Rights Act does is really um, set up uh, both, both uh, race and gender as, as a protected class by the federal government. It desegregates all public accommodations, all federal accommodations. Um, and, and certainly, um, when we think about 64, the Civil Rights Act is going to be the major legislative victory of, of 64. Finally, in terms of this heroic period of the Civil Rights Movement, 65, uh, uh, Selma to Montgomery demonstration, um, when we think about uh, uh, March 5th, um, 1965, Bloody Sunday, um, then there's going to be Turnaround Tuesday, um, and on March, uh, March 15th, 1965, uh, Lyndon Johnson is going to make his speech to the Joint Address of Congress, where he says that civil rights is um, a national issue, and he joins that struggle. He says that the people who were uh, the demonstrators who are beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, on Bloody Sunday uh, by Alabama state troopers, Lyndon Johnson is going to say that they are patriots and they are part of this long tradition of American freedom, uh, which is really extraordinary. So uh, the President of the United States on March 15th really says he's going to push for voting rights, an act that's going to be passed uh, in 19, in, in, on August 6, 1965, and an act that we should say was basically revoked by the Supreme Court by 2013 in the Shelby versus Holder uh, decision. But the Voting Rights Act is going to be huge because what the Voting Rights Act does is provide a context for millions of African Americans who've been disallowed from voting in the Deep South um, to have access to the franchise over a period of time. And that Voting Rights Act and its consequences are really going to be something that Ronald Walters um, devotes his life to, uh, among other um, things. When we think about Ronald Walters and black power, the black power ferment is what really is going to excite Ronald Walters and really mark the shift in his own scholarship. Um, the movement for black studies is really going to uh, be a movement that argues that black people are being disserviced by Eurocentric or white supremacist um, educational uh, institutions in the United States, really from kindergarten all the way to higher education, right? And so when we think about black studies, what, what is it? It's an interdisciplinary perspective um, really on, on all the fields. Methodologically, in terms of black studies, combines history, political science, anthropology, um, ethnic studies, women's studies, uh, law and society, all these different um, disciplines. But it, it, it does it from what Walters called a black perspective, right? It's a perspective that critiques uh, Western civilization. It critiques white supremacy. It critiques racial slavery and makes an argument that enslaved Africans had um, um, intellectual abilities. Enslaved Africans had real perspectives that should be shaping how we think about that history and how we think about contemporary American democracy. So when we think about this move for black studies and black student unions, um, this was a move to try to disrupt these institutions of white supremacy. And one thing I would push back against, when we think about the author, I think he, this is, he does a, a terrific job with this book overall, but he makes an argument that 
black studies is, is not quite as um, uh, uh, impactful as I think it, it is. I think he underestimates. When we think about black studies, black studies is a game changer because this happens at both predominantly white institutions like Brandeis University, which recruits Ronald Walters, and he becomes chair of black studies at Brandeis University from 1969 to 1971, but also Howard University. Um, Ronald Walters spends the bulk of his career in the political science department at Howard University and also running um, different um, centers and institutes of leadership and urban politics. And black studies transforms Howard as well, right? So even historically black colleges and universities um, um, like Howard University, like Fisk, are going to be transformed. And really, what is, what is, when we think about black power and black studies, the movement for black studies is a counter-hegemonic movement. It's a movement um, that is, is critical of, of Western um, epistemolo epistemology. And we think about epistemology as the philosophical foundations of knowledge and knowledge production, what black studies says is that it's not just saying we want to replace um, white interlocutors with black. It's saying that uh, Western civilization is... Uh, ignoring um, histories of colonialism, racial slavery, imperialism. And we need to, by talking about slavery, by talking about um, uh, reconstruction, redemption, by talking about uh, the black experience in the West, we reformulate and we rethink and we reimagine paradigms and frameworks of not just, not just intellectual history, but frameworks of culture frameworks of politics, frameworks of gender, leadership, sexual orientation, frameworks of war, violence, civil society, politics. So black studies is a huge intervention which, which <laughs> this book underestimates. Um, when we think about Ron Walters, Ron Walters did not underestimate it. Ron Walters understood it and really pushed back against, even by the 1960s and 70s, where we saw a proliferation of white interest in black studies and black subjects. White, Ron Walters pushes back against this idea of white control over black intellectual independence. He pushes back, including the NR, NRC and National Science Foundation, different foundations, Ford Foundation, that are trying to shape, through McGeorge Bundy and, and um, different white liberals, shape the tenor of black studies by giving money to Yale, giving money to different um, um, uh, departments, as, as long as those departments are not militant and are not radical. Um, and this is a good time to talk about Ron Walters and black power and black nationalism and his version of black nationalism. When we think about this idea of black nationalism, uh, black nationalism uh, rests on three uh, pillars, and we could talk about um, uh, how those pillars um, um, can grow and evolve. We're, we're thinking about this idea of, of uh, racial unity, you know, um, this idea of the cultural politics of race and this idea of self-determination. And Ron Walters really tried to craft all of those into uh, a, a paradigm for African-American leadership, um, but also African-American leadership that was accountable to day-to-day -day ordinary black people, the black quotidian. And that's the real tension. You know, Walters goes from being an outsider, a black intellectual who's connected to the 1972 Gary Convention, the National Black Political Convention, who's connected to these insurgent um, um, outside movements to try to reimagine black politics to becoming an insider, 
somebody who's advising Jesse Jackson, who's part of the National um, Black Leadership Roundtable, who's, who's uh, ensconced um, in a kind of privilege, but it's never really white privilege. It's sort of he's ensconced in sort of black elites, trying to convince those elites to be more accountable to ordinary people, and often failing to convince those elites to be more accountable to ordinary people. But for a moment, when we think about Ron Walters and black nationalism, Ron Walters was a black nationalist and pan-Africanist, right? He wasn't a narrow nationalist. He wasn't somebody who didn't think that black people should have coalitions, but he really felt that um, black interests were not being served within the context of American politics. Even during the civil rights movement, the great society, black power, there was always this pushback, right? And so what Ron Walters is always pushing is this idea of a black agenda. And he, when we think about that black agenda, um, the high point, in a way, is the 1972 Gary Convention. When we think about this black power movement, black power, the decade of black power is, is a call for radical social, political, cultural, economic self-determination at the local, regional, national, and global level. I disagree with the author uh, who says that black power was fundamentally reformist. I don't think that's true. I think that there were reform elements in black power, and certainly the Nixon administration and subsequent administrations, presidential administrations, tried to um, uh, take the movement hostage and really point the movement and really um, absorb the movement in very specific uh, directions. So when we think about uh, black power as reform, it's Richard Nixon advocating black power is black capitalism. Right? And even though Nixon advocates black power as black capitalism, he refuses to provide even black entrepreneurs the full and unfettered access and backing of the federal government to become um, these proto-capitalists. Right? Uh, so when we think about black power, black power, and the radicalism of black power is in trying to fundamentally alter the way in which democratic institutions in the United States work. And sometimes people who are even militants and black radicals don't realize the radicalism of that. Somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. did, Malcolm X by the end of his life does, but for, for a long time he's pushing back against King and pushing back against voting, right? But the only way you're going to transform this democracy is to utterly transform the institutions in the democracy. And if these institutions are producing unequal outcomes, if you radically transform those institutions, you can gain not just access, but you can actually reimagine the way in which power relations between blacks and whites and other groups, rich and poor, actually play out. And that's what Ron Walters tried to do. That's what he tries to do. So when we think about black power and even a movement for black studies, black studies radically alters institutions of higher education. I'm not saying it's a complete revolution, but even a place like where we're at, University of Texas at Austin, the very presence of black studies has changed and transformed this place. And not just um, academically, but it's connected to sports, it's connected to culture, it's connected to art, it's connected to public policy, right? So we can't underestimate that, even as black studies didn't fulfill the mission necessarily of some of its most revolutionary architects, right? 
um, in terms of being something that was institutionalized and also connected to communities. In some cases that happened, in other cases that didn't. In other cases, we have sort of a, a, a parallel to the ivory tower, in this case an ebony tower, um, in terms of black studies. Uh, when we think about Ronald Walters and this idea of a black perspective, in 1972, National Black Political Convention meets in Gary, Indiana, and Walters is one of the key behind-the-scenes figures who's, who's helping write that national black political agenda. And what was the agenda? The agenda was an agenda for urban, rural, uh, local, uh, regional, national, and international um, public policy uh, transformation, this idea of ending black poverty, the idea of ending the achievement gap, the idea of ending um, uh, racial segregation both in, in uh, living accommodations and residences, but also in public schools, the idea of ending wage gaps. But one of the things that Ron Walters always talked about was what? The wealth gap. Ron Walters spends his life talking about the wealth gap, and he connects the wealth gap to racial slavery and its aftermath. That one of the reasons why the black public sphere has a hard time um, not just organizing itself, but wielding actual economic and political power is because of a wealth gap. What racial slavery does, and Walters is one of the key figures here, and we've seen new, really brilliant books by everybody uh, from um, uh, Dinah Ramey Berry um, and The Price for Their Pound of Flesh to uh, Craig Wilder and Ebony and Ivy, to Ed Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told, to Walter Johnson, River of Dark Dreams, um, uh, to Sven Beckert, Empire of Cotton, uh, Sadia Hartman, so many different others who are giving us these really fine-grained studies of racial slavery. But Ron Walters is a trailblazer in arguing that what racial slavery does is create enormous wealth in the United States, and it really is a violent transfer of that wealth from black labor into white hands, right? That's his argument, right? And empirically, he's correct. He's absolutely correct. So Ron Walters, even as he's, he's pushing for black leadership and he's pushing for black political power, he makes a claim that black people will never have that political power without closing the wealth gap. And when, when he thinks about wealth gap, what he's arguing, he's not talking about wages. He's not talking about a good job and a great salary. He's talking about wealth. He's talking about assets. He's talking about wealth that is, um, can be uh, legacy, that, that can help generations of African Americans. And that's why Ron Walters, before the contemporary conversation, reparations that we're having, um, and of course we, we, we know about um, and we read Case for Reparations by Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, Ron Walters, along with people like Randall Robinson, were talking about reparations. And certainly, there's a long history of this. Queen Mother Moore, um, Callie House, that goes back to the 19th century, uh, uh, Bishop Turner, um, and, of course, uh, National Coalition uh, of Blacks for Reparations in America, and COBRA, and, and others. Uh, James Foreman is part of this as well, when he went up to the United Churches and demanded uh, a half a billion dollars in 1969. So this idea of reparations, and it's in the chapter shooting for the moon or asking for the moon, reparations Walters looked at as a comprehensive policy solution, something that would think about wealth, that would think about income, that would think about segregation, think about inequality, and think about why are there continuing racial, uh, disparate racial outcomes. 
So in the 21st century and the late 20th century, the way in which we can identify racism is by looking at outcomes, right? And this, when we think about reparations, this is connected to mass incarceration uh, as well. Now, by the 1970s, one of the things that Walters becomes really interested in is presidential politics. And I want to talk about presidential politics and black power. Um, Walters uh, leads studies and is at the 1976, 1980, 1984 uh, uh, political conventions, Democratic political conventions. He's very much interested in um, the way in which presidents and the rhetoric of the presidency is impacting um, civil rights and impacting uh, a movement for black political power and really racial justice and equality. W one of the things Walters is hugely interested in is this convergence between race, democracy, and citizenship and the way in which um, the rhetoric post-1960s starts to attack the moral basis of black claims of citizenship and black claims of reparative citizenship, right? Because when you think about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1963 March on Washington, one of the main things that King says in that text is that we come here today, this is Washington, D.C., on the National Mall, um, to cash a check, a check that has been stamped insufficient funds, but we refuse to believe that the Bank of American Democracy is, 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 is bankrupt. That's, that's what he says, right? And when we think about... Um, in the 1960s, there's a po point where even the president of the United States, two presidents, uh, Kennedy and Johnson, um, really uh, justify that moral claim. They say, you know, there is a moral claim. Kennedy says it on national television, June 11, 1963. Uh, president Lyndon Johnson says it at Howard University on June 4th, uh, 1965, at the very famous Howard University um, commencement speech, where he says that, uh, you can't have two runners and one who's been shackled, and you expect them to run the race equally. And in that speech, President Johnson talks about outcomes. It's not just equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes. That's what he says. So for a time, the moral claim of, of black citizenship, not just equal citizenship, but reparative citizenship. And what are we repairing? We're repairing... Um, the crime of racial slavery, and another century of Jim Crow racial segregation and anti-black violence. That's the crime, right, that continues even post-1965. And so when we think about by the 1970s and 80s, one of the things that Ron Walters really challenges, and he pushes the black community on this, is to recognize that the rhetoric coming from the United States from both Republicans and Democrats is a rhetoric that is abandoning this idea of black citizenship, right? So way before Bill Clinton, uh, Robert Smith talks about the convergence with Clinton, Jimmy Carter abandoned the black community. Jimmy Carter, with the Nobel Prize, did not love black folks while he was president of the United States. So the convergence between Republican racism and Democratic Party racism started in the 1960s and 70s. Right? So we only have this idea of a moral, reparative black citizenship that there's a consensus around for several years because of the crises that are occurring in the 1960s. I would argue maybe 1963 to 1968, right? And one of the great um, uh, tragedies of that period is the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Because as long as Martin Luther King Jr. was alive, you had a symbol globally who was recognized 
as the symbol of that claim of moral, reparative black citizenship. So what's interesting for Ron Walters and us when we think about civil rights and black power as students of black politics and black history is that he recognizes that by the 1970s that American politics has shifted towards neoliberalism in the 1970s. The rhetoric of Jimmy Carter is the rhetoric of Bill Clinton. And what Ron Walters will argue is that there's a strain of that rhetoric that continues in Barack Obama. And he pushes back against that, even as black leadership and the black community fulsomely, unapologetically embraces the Obama administration, hook, line, and sinker, right? So when we think about Walters in the 1970s and 80s, even before talking about Walters and Ronald Reagan, um, Walters is pushing back against the Democratic Party and the fact that the Democratic Party by the 1970s at the presidential level and the national level is, is abandoning black folks. And part of his pushback is trying to organize what? Folks who are part of the Congressional Black Caucus and black elected officials and leaders. He's trying to push them not just further left politically, but he wants them to adopt unapologetically a black agenda. Right? He's pushing back against this idea that black folks are the literal bete noir of the Democratic Party, that Thomas Edsel and Chain Reaction says, that Bill Clinton shows by, by uh, going and presiding over the death of Ricky Ray Rector, the mentally ill black man in Arkansas, to show the white folks that he's willing to kill black people to be president of the United States in 1992. And Bill Clinton's sister soldier moment where you throw black people under the bus, but you still only get 43 percent of the white uh, of the vote because because white people aren't having it to vote for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has been stained by its allegiance to blacks during the 1960s. But the fact that the white electorate refuses to vote for the Democratic Party, that's a moral sin on that electorate, not the party. But the party doesn't interpret it that way. The party says, we've got to do everything in our power to distance ourselves from black people, from black citizenship, from racial justice. And Ron Walters is a strikingly eloquent voice trying to push the CBC and black leadership to say that they, this will not stand. Um, when we think about the Reagan era, really, really important because Ron Walters looks upon Reagan's ascendancy as a rise in what he calls white nationalism. Um, he, he really looks at white nationalism as something that can be racist and white supremacist and also something that can be just about white people trying to protect their group interests, right? So he sees it as a combination of those things, right? He sees, he, he makes an argument, Ron Walters in his scholarship on white nationalism, that what political scientists and scholars never do, they look at black public opinion and Latino public opinion and other group public opinion, but they don't look at white public opinion and think of that as an interest group, as a block group in this pluralistic society of, of white people trying to protect white interests. And in this case, it's not just Irish or Italian interests. It's this amalgamation of whiteness that is constructed throughout the 19th and 20th century. And when we think about this idea of white nationalism, by the 1980s, what Reagan really appeals to is this idea of pushing back against reparative claims, moral claims of black citizenship. They say that affirmative action is reverse racism. They say that black poverty is not a result of public policy and white supremacy and institutional racism and also racial violence against black women and children and babies. 
They say that it's about black people's behavior and the great society and liberal programs have actually distorted the African-American work ethic. And that's the irony, because the African-American work ethic, the black work ethic, is what built up the United States of America, right? And continues to build up the United States of America. But the argument is going to be that black people are somehow morally and genetically defective. And we continue to see the scientific racism from a whole host of neoconservative and conservative scholars, including, um, um, you know, we, we have authors bell curve looking at, at test scores, all these different things into the 1990s and into the present. Ron Walters is, is, a, is a stalwart figure pushing back against that. Right. So when we think about um, what what does Walters try to do, he makes a few claims. He starts talking about presidential leadership in the 1970s and 80s. And he says that black people as an electorate can do a few things. Um, they can decide to stay home and not vote. They can vote for the Democratic Party as the lesser of two evils. Or they can really withhold their vote or vote strategically, allow Democrats to lose and be in a better bargaining position the next time. But he also says one thing that black people could do is create an independent black political party. Create an independent black political party, give black votes to that independent black political party, and then the party apparatus would negotiate with the Democratic Party or Republican Party for policy demands in the next cycle, right? And in a way, that independent black party is never um, uh, materializes, even though he, he's part of many different movements um, and iterations, um, including there's a national black independent political party in 1980 and others. Uh, but the Jesse Jackson presidential run, especially of 1984, in a way less so 88, um, is an example of what Walters wanted to have a black person run for president and utilize the, the, the publicity and utilize the power that they would get from the presidential run to do what? To really have leverage. He talks about independent leverage versus dependent leverage. Independent leverage would mean that you can, you, you can negotiate with white power brokers independently. Dependent leverage, which he says is what Jesse Jackson achieves, is that Jesse Jackson was too wedded to the Democratic Party. So he could ask for con concessions, but only within the framework of the Democratic Party. So when we think about the, the 84 presidential run of Jesse Jackson, this is hugely, hugely important because what Jesse Jackson does, even as he tries to run as a universal candidate, he's going to be interpreted as a black candidate, right? Um, he tries to run uni universal everything, whether it's health care, um, income, uh, uh, ending poverty, uh, uh, a more um, generous foreign policy to the third world, all these different things. And when we think about 84, 84 is a great example of both 84 and 88 of how Ron Walters is, is transitioning into a political insider, but a political insider who's still concerned about black power and its impact on the grassroots. Um, he becomes deputy campaign manager for domestic issues, um, um, in the Jackson campaign in 1984. He's the person who's writing memos. He's writing memoranda. He's, he's, he's handling the press. Uh, he becomes a leading figure um, by the 1980s in terms of uh, as a black public intellectual, but also policy advocate. And really, um, before Bill Clinton's election in 1992, really anticipates 
the rise of neoliberal politicians who are really scapegoating black communities, scapegoating black communities. But these black communities are held hostage because the Republican Party under Reagan and then subsequently continues to be vociferously anti-black in terms of its policy positions, right? Its policy positions. Because sometimes people will say, well, is this party uh, racist? And the answer is, all the racists think so, and they love the party. So that's your answer, right? So if all the policy propositions are anti-black, right, then that's your answer. That's your answer. But the Democratic Party has its own racial problem, right? Because the Democratic Party starts to fear that its, its connection to black votes is making it less um, hospitable to white voters, right? And so when we think about the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party under Carter and Clinton tries to triangulate. It tries to do things like affirmative action, mend it, don't end it. Welfare reform is really not aimed, it's aimed as a policy that is criminalizing the Democratic Party's most loyal constituency, welfare reform and criminal justice reform. So these are the things that Ron Walters pushes back against. He says, how can you continue to have allegiance to this party that is criminalizing um, black mothers who are single, that is criminalizing teenagers, that is throwing all these people in jail. And that's where Walter's idea of a, his notion of black power as an independent political party, a party that could be potentially the balance of power, um, really comes into play. That has a hard time coming into existence. Um, why? Uh, because so many black elected leaders depend on the Democratic Party's patronage. Our two-party system, in a way, um, really served to preclude um, Walters' strategies of creating an independent black politics, even though historically black people have tried to do this. Um, there was a Freedom Now Party in 1963. There's a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. There's the Lowndes County um, 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 Freedom Organization, nicknamed the Black Panther Party in 1966. And that, that Lowndes County Black Panther Party is what inspires the Oakland Black Panther Party and the Black Panthers that we think of in the contemporary context. So Walters was all for that, but that does not um, happen in the way that he had anticipated. I'll say questions. I'm going to open it up. <laughs> um, I have a question, just a simple question. Um, do you think that black power was a logical extension to like the integration of civil rights movements, or was it a break? You know, I think I think it's 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 both. I think it's separate and distinct, but it's it's uh, I. I think when you think about civil rights and black power, you think about these black freedom struggles as a huge um, redwood in California, a redwood tree. And uh, they are, there are many, many branches. And at times, those branches intertwine. And at times, those branches are separate. So I think black power is rooted in the same tree, but it's definitely a different branch. But one of the things we have to remember, the way politics works, people are very complex, and we know this. So there are people who are part of both movements. There are NAACP activists who admire and participate in aspects of black power. Not talking about Roy Wilkins, right? Not talking about Roy Wilkins, but, or, or Thurgood Marshall. But black power and civil rights at times converge. But one thing we can say about black power that was different from civil rights, and I think this even impacts uh, Dr. King's um, rhetoric and his understanding, is black power, and you see this with Ron Walters' work, has a structural critique 
of what's going on in the United States. So it's got a structural critique of what's going on domestically and globally. So it, it wants to understand why the convergence, what King talk, talked about, militarism, materialism, racism, how those things are connected. And it wants to understand how it's connected at the local level, um, um, in the north, in the urban south, uh, on the west coast, but then also nationally, but then also in Vietnam, in Africa, in Latin America. It wants to understand these things. And so the, one of the big differences, and I think um, sometimes people conflate this, is say that uh, black power activists, um, um, because of their critique of American democracy, didn't believe in American democracy. Walters does. I mean, by the end of his life, S Smith is making the argument that, that he's just talking about moral suasion. But I would push back on that. I don't think he's just talking about moral suasion. He's talking about organizing to transform democratic institutions. Certainly, there's been people, including black power activists, who are Marxists, who are socialists, um, who, are, who are revolutionary feminists, who who have a critique of democracy and want a whole different kind of system. But when we think about Ron Walters, what Ron Walters was talking about was how do we leverage black power to transform democratic institutions, right? To transform those institutions. And he's interested in policy. He's interested in why, uh, why is white politics just intent on white public policy, and he's interested in, in illustrating that, because one of the things that Walters does with the 2003 book on white nationalism is he really casts a strobe light on something that we saw nationally and globally to people's surprise, uh, in quote, surprise, in 2016, this idea of white nationalism, this idea of, of uh, uh, white group interest um, um, converging around a few things converging around not just anti-black racism and anti-Latino racism, but, but converging around preserving white privilege economically, right? Preserving white privilege policy-wise. And this is privilege that has been born at the expense of black people through racial slavery, okay? That's where the privilege is. The privilege is racial slavery. The privilege is Jim Crow. But one of the things that Walter sees is that at times black people, black elites at least, weren't ready to really robustly criticize and mobilize against that privilege. Once they became ensconced in the Democratic Party and in leadership and economic privilege themselves, uh, they were milquetoast at times in trying to push back against the levels of, of, of privilege and the levels of, of racial um, really racial animus that marked policy uh, in the 1980s and 90s. And in this context, I'm thinking about um, black elected officials who voted for um, uh, uh, Reagan um, drug laws uh, and, and crime reform. Um, I'm thinking of black elected officials, uh, anybody who voted for the Clinton crime bill or welfare reform. These are things that are going to negatively impact, but at this point, these folks are no longer accountable to the black quotidian, right? And so Walters is really a trailblazer in, in he, do, he doesn't necessarily have a prescription on how to win, but he's saying, here are the problems. Because sometimes um, just really illustrating what the problems are become a huge intervention. It becomes up to another generation to try to, to, try to answer those questions. But that's what Walters did. And in a lot of ways, when we think about um, and I, in a moment, I want to switch to Walters as a pan-Africanist. But with Walters and presidential leadership and Walters and, and uh, uh, white nationalism, 
What Walter sees is the fact that black politics and the way in which it moves from protest uh, to politics, at least at the elite level. We have to remember, when we think about a study like this and Ron Walters, there's all kinds of grassroots insurgency happening in the 80s and 90s, right? They're not covering it here. But, but, and, and, and Walters is connected somewhat, but this is actually, it's absolutely happening. But we're thinking about black politics as it's organized at an elite level. They, it goes from protest to politics. They're not mobilizing demonstrations. It's not the same. In 1972, we saw Congressman Charles Diggs from Michigan align himself with Richard Hatcher, the mayor of Gary, Indiana, but also Amiri Baraka, the Pan-Africanist and revolutionary at the Gary Convention. That would not happen today. That, that would not ha And this was not happening by the 1980s. So Walter says that black politicians have to reach out to the grassroots. He tries to connect this and national... Uh, 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 black Leadership Roundtable. He tries to do a National Black Faculty Congress. All these different things that um, are never well resourced enough to um, um, uh, become institutionalized, right? Um, and then briefly, when it comes to white nationalism, Walters really sees what we're all experiencing today, that there was white, um, uh, not just ethnic, but along, when you think about whiteness as a socially constructed identity, right? In, in the 19th and 20th century, but post-war whiteness includes all kinds of previously marginalized white ethnics, right? Um, so people who could not be part of uh, a, a sort of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation. Walters anticipated and saw that, really, when we think about whiteness by Reagan, it, 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 was, it was Catholics, it was Gentiles, it was Jews, it was Irish, it was, it was uh, Portuguese, it was Greek, it was this whole, it was this white identity that, that was really trying to protect its interests. And these were interests that were fundamentally constructed on the backs of black and brown people, right? And he calls that out. And he says, black people have to understand that and organize within the context of this. And one of the, the final thing I'll say on this uh, until the conclusion is that Walters really understood and tried to push back against this loss of moral authority, right? This loss of moral authority that, again, it's not just King who had it, but it's Ella Baker, it's Fannie Lou Hamer, it's Malcolm X. Malcolm X is the person who is constantly saying that what has happened to black people and what happened to him while he spent seven years in three different prisons in Massachusetts was because of a series of crimes that happened against black America. He's saying it, and he's saying it at a point in the 50s, in the early 60s, before black power nationally, that people don't want to listen and people say, how dare you, right? The, Toni Morrison calls them unspeakable, unspoken truths, right? And that's what Baldwin does, too, and so does Toni Morrison, right? So when we think about um, um, what Ron Walters tries to do, he tries to call this out. He tries to say, here's what's happening, and here's why we have to organize around this. Questions before Pan-Africanism. Oh. A lot of the electoral strategy that Walters talks about seems like it would be a lot easier to execute on the state and local level, and it seems like a much easier task to try and hold leaders accountable to quotidian issues on those levels. Like, I think about uh, Jesse Jackson, like, winning five primaries in 1984 and thinking, like, if you were working on those state levels, you might actually be able to achieve policy goals more easily in states like Louisiana. Um, so is there a disconnect there, or is he deferring to other people with that 
level of action? I think what he wants is a connection, Oliver. I think that's a great, great question, comment. I think that one of the reasons why Jesse ran was because um, Ron, um, uh, Harold Washington in Chicago won the mayor. The, the, he became mayor of Chicago um, after the 83 election, and that was big inspiration. Jesse was taking that Southern tour in 1983. So it's supposed to do both, because one of the things that you saw uh, with Jesse Jackson's run, he mobilizes uh, millions of black voters who had not previously voted. You know, he mo he mobilized, and Harold Washington did the same thing in Chicago, right? And Harold Washington is one of the people who inspired uh, Barack Obama. By the time Barack Obama moves to Chicago uh, during his first couple of years, Harold Washington is president, uh, excuse me, is mayor of Chicago. So when we think about um, that state and local uh, parties, the theory or the thinking was that if you had somebody who runs for president at the national level, and remember by, in 84, Jesse receives um, maybe uh, three and a half million votes. By, by 88, it's, it's, it's about seven million votes, eight million votes. So that person is going to mobilize a constituency that it'll be easier to mobilize if people are running for president. You know, um, Shirley Chisholm had run in 1972, but there, there, there hadn't been unity around her run. So she, she was able to get some black groups, for instance, notably the Black Panthers uh, supported Shirley Chisholm's run, but it was a sort of a coalition of, of, of whites and, 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 and blacks and feminists and different, different progressives, where Jesse, even though he gets 10 uh, and then 15 percent of the white vote, it's really sort of this third world coalition that's behind um, Jesse. And there's really a lot of black voters that are behind Jesse in the primary. So I think when we think about um, the electoral strategy, it was national, but it was national to get regional and local and even municipal buy-in, right, to see people do this. And re really, in a lot of ways, at least initially, the Obama um, run in, in 2008 helps people and helps um, candidates at the local level. Um, by In subsequent ca uh, elections, it doesn't. It, it doesn't, because the pushback and the organized pushback against them is so hard, and the disappointment by people who supported him is so apparent that as early as 2010, state by state, you're seeing a diminution so that during his eight years, you're going to see the Democratic Party lose, um, you know, the most just officials nationally that it ever had lost, you know, not just in Congress, but state by state, because the organized opposition is so, runs so deep. I want to, um, I want to talk, uh, about Ron Walters as a Pan-Africanist and then um, wrap up. Uh, when we think about Walters as a Pan-Africanist, uh, we see this in both his support for reparations, but also the movement to end apartheid in South Africa. So Ron Walters worked with people like Randall Robinson of Trans-Africa, and he's a huge, huge advocate of um, African independence, um, uh, trying to make sure Africa is not a victim of structural adjustment policies and IMF policies that really restrict the way in which Africa might grow into an economic superpower globally. Um, Walters uh, travels to South Africa. He travels and sees truth and reconciliation there, and he pushes back against truth and reconciliation in South Africa as reconciliation on the cheap, just like he pushes back against conversations on race domestically in the United States as reconciliation on the cheap. He wants, which does not happen in South Africa, 
a wealth transfer from white hands and white power to black hands, not just a political elite that is represented by Nelson Mandela. So Ron Walters identifies the problems of neocolonialism that we'll see that are flourishing in South Africa with everything from political corruption to huge, huge endemic poverty in Bantustan um, lands um, uh, to, to uh, AIDS and HIV skyrocketing, um, lack, uh, high rates of unemployment in South Africa um, um, post-apartheid, right? So when we think about Ron Walters, Walters is huge as a, as a, as a functioning, um, radically pragmatic Pan-Africanist who's interested in the United States having sanctions, hard sanctions against South Africa in the 1980s, which is something that eventually is successful in spite of the Reagan administration and others not wanting to sanction South Africa. Um, he's interested in real um, um, dialogue and learning from Africans and, and not trying to do this whole idea of black people are the leaders and, and they're going to sort of teach the Africans about their own independence. Um, when we think about Walters and this idea of reparations, he connects it both, both domestically and globally, right? His idea of reparations is both um, wealth transfer, um, th that is not just income, because even if you, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wanted a guaranteed income, but a guaranteed income would not be enough, because generationally what we see is that these wealth transfers from, white hand, from, from, from black labor to white hands have been going on since racial slavery, and they've been aided and abetted by the federal government when we think about the New Deal and the Federal Housing Authority and, and the way in which whites were able to buy uh, homes that were subsidized, and even black GIs were not able to do this, right? So a, a home ownership value has been, become the biggest source of intergenerational wealth among whites, and black people never had a chance, even in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, to do this. And you compound that with black people being shut out, for the most part, of industrial labor. Even though, like the scholar Joe Trotter has said and reminds us that black people were, black folk were workers on arrival, they've not been able to be part of unions in a big way, um, which, which is part of that, that, that lack of access to both income but wealth, because what unions allowed the white working class to do is get access to home ownership, which has been the single driver of intergenerational wealth among ordinary whites. We're not talking about the white elite, so I'm not talking about the Gulf and the crew crowd. We're talking about ordinary whites, okay? So Ron Walters, when we think about this idea of reparations in Ron Walters, uh, pan-Africanism, anti-apartheid, his, his, his notion of black power is global. It's cosmopolitan, and he's, he's He's hugely interested in black people setting the agenda for themselves, right? Um, so it's, it's important to remember that Walters and this idea of a black perspective, it's not just intellectual. He wants it to be a practical application, that black people can actually identify the problems that are impacting their communities locally, regionally, nationally, and globally, but they can also then organize around those problems. So this issue of pan-Africanism for Ron Walters, it's not just pan-Africanism um, um, as this imaginary concept. It's, it's real tangible and constructive and institutional right, uh, for, for, for Walters. And in a way, when we think about Walters and institutions, he leaves Howard University in the 90s. He goes to the University of Maryland. Didn't feel 
um, um, really appreciated by Howard University and the, the upper administration. Um, shortly before his death, he was planning to return to Howard University. But this idea of Ron Walters being ensconced in black politics and black institutions, uh, for the most part, is very, very important. Even though he was a black public intellectual, he appeared on C-SPAN almost 100 times, um, and his biographer says that that's a record. Uh, he was really connected to black institutions, right? So his idea of black power um, was, was black-led. And really, you know, it, it's non-ideological to the extent that Walters didn't necessarily define himself as a Marxist or a liberal or an integrationist, but certainly he was a strong race man. And, you know, this idea of race man goes back to, or race woman, Ida B. Wells, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, um, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Lorraine Hansberry, Malcolm X, Ella Baker, Angela Davis. These race women and race men were people who um, um, believed in racial justice and on some levels wanted to be, uh, get racial justice depending on, they didn't just have one set way to do it, in a way, you know? And so Walters is willing to talk uh, to people who he disagrees with, but he's also willing to um, um, adopt multiple um, overlapping strategies, right? He wants a big tent, for lack of a better word. And in that, I think Walters is reminiscent of aspects of uh, uh, what Malcolm X talked about and, and others who wanted a big tent and wanted, um, Stokely Carmichael talks about it, a black united front, so to speak, to organize um, um, for black issues. Um, briefly, and then I'll, I'll open this up, Ron Walters and Barack Obama. Um, uh, Walters writes about Barack Obama. Obviously, Ron Walters passed away of cancer in 2010, and um, he's around for the 08 election, and he writes his weekly column. He wrote a weekly column for decades on, on black politics. Um, he, he is both impressed by Barack Obama, but also disappointed that Obama refuses to um, listen uh, and understand that his job as president is to be open to a black agenda along with white agendas and other agendas. That, that's what he's disappointed by. He realizes that Barack Obama is president of the United States, but what Walters makes an argument for, about in his writings and a criticism of Obama, but also black leadership and, and black people, is that as president of the United States, you have to listen to multiple agendas and then decide the importance of those agendas, the order you're going to tackle those agendas. So presidents of the United States, they listen to Armenian Americans, Turkish Americans. They listen to multiple constituencies. What, what Walters argued was that Barack Obama was being disingenuous when he said that he couldn't advocate for a black agenda. He could only follow the law because, said, because Walters said, in a pluralistic society, the president is listening to multiple agendas. So how come this president, the first black president, is saying he's not even going to listen to a black agenda? And I think that's a fair question. That's a fair question. So black people get elected the first black president, and the, 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 the booby prize is that your agenda is out for the next eight years. That's the prize. So the prize is a, is a moral and psychological prize. You're psyched about Barack Obama, you know? And, and man, Michelle Obama is beautiful. And their children, those children are great, right? That's, that's the prize. That's what Walters argued. Walters said, black people can't just say that because you elect the first black president, there is no black agenda. 
And the quote that, that Walter said is that they're so enthralled, they're going to give this brother a pass. That's what he said. They're going to give this brother a pass, right? In, 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 you know, so he's, he's speaking in just black vernacular, and giving a brother a pass, giving your brother a pass or your sister a pass is just, wow, just because you're black, we're just letting this, this you know, this is, this is fine. You know, this is, it's, it's an in-house deal, right? Um, and so when we think about Barack Obama and black politics, Walters really pushed back, not because Obama wasn't trying to run as a black power president. He realized that Obama couldn't have won. If, if Obama uh, uh, raised the black power sign at the Democratic National Convention, if Obama came out on the White House lawn with a Malcolm X t-shirt, right, that these things would be politically um, injurious. They would be disastrous. But it didn't mean that Obama, because he was the black president or a president who happened to be black, had to ignore a black agenda. And I think that's, um, that, is, that is fair criticism, and that's much different from some criticism that is trying to um, um, attack Obama for, for, for not um, just solely advocating a black agenda, which no president can do. Although one of the things that Walters reminds us is that he felt that Ronald Reagan was adopting throughout eight years a white agenda, right? Ronald Reagan, by, by um, crippling uh, the, the, the social economic and the, um, when we think about the great society programs that helped so many poor people but black people, by trying to cripple affirmative action, cripple civil rights and civil rights litigation through the Justice Department, that through the two terms of Reagan and, 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 and subsequently by other presidents, they were following a, a, a white agenda and an anti-black agenda. So they did both things. They, they, um, they, they morally repudiated the idea that black people had reparative um, equal citizenship claims. And they also criminalized blackness during the 1980s and 90s by connecting black bodies to what they called was a culture of poverty, crime, and a cycle of shame, right? And Walters pushes back against Obama for preaching uh, about morality to black people, right? Um, because he says he was elected to be president, but the idea that Obama is telling black people about um, um, uh, fatherlessness or black people about uh, using, talking about myths of, of uh, black people, uh, black kids fearing um, that if they, they're smart, they're acting white. These are all anecdotal. This is not real. But these myths persist, right? So, and, and, and the bottom line of all these myths, including uh, CNN anchors telling black kids to pull up their pants, is that it's our fault. That's the bottom line. So the bottom line always that racial slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, anti-black violence, lynching, right, um, uh, black women dying at higher rates who are, who are pregnant, no matter what their economic situation and income situation is, the bottom line always is it's our fault. Ron Walters boldly pushed back against that. He pushed back against that. So when we think about Walters from black power all the way to Barack Obama, he's pushing back against the idea that it's black people's fault, right? But what's so interesting about that is that that narrative is so thick and so deeply rooted in the American conscious that there's aspects of black politics that reflects that narrative. And it's not just respectability politics. It's aspects of the black church. It's aspects of black elected leaders. It's aspects of black intellectuals who say, you know what? It's your fault, <laughs> okay? It's your fault. And so 
Walter's pushing back against that is enormously important, especially before the age of Black Lives Matter. I would say in a contemporary context, Black Lives Matter and BLM and those movements really push back against this idea that there's something inherently wrong in black bodies. There's something inherently inferior and degenerative morally, intellectually, politically, culturally in black, in black bodies, even as the culture celebrates aspects of black genius as long as it's sports, as long as it's music, as long as it's food, right? As long as it's in a, in a way where we can, we can fetishize blackness but not talk about what the responsibilities are, right? So nobody wants the, 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 the burdens, right, um, the, the loathing, but, but the lure is, is a billion-dollar cultural industry that's global, right? Walter's pushed back against that, and I think that um, in a lot of ways that's going to be his legacy. He's really... Uh, uh, one of the most important um, uh, black uh, political figures of the post-war period as an intellectual, as a policy advocate, but really as somebody who is willing to speak truth to power and not just to um, uh, uh, white, white conservatives and white people, but really to, to black leadership and black people. That's it. Um, so thank you, and uh, that's it for this week, and we'll meet again next week. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.